Thanks, Mike. I'm so excited this morning, and I, I promise it has nothing to do with the Falcons. I'm just stoked to be with you. All right. Um, my name is Matt, one of the pastors here. Super glad to be with you this morning. Uh, we have, uh, if you don't have a Bible, I'm going to go ahead and ask that first. Uh, if a couple of elders could grab the Bibles and hand them out. You are going to need it this morning. Pretty significantly. Uh, I do want to make one quick uh, pre-intro thing. We're in a series on life on mission, and uh, we're going to be so for, for another few weeks. But one of the things that surfaced, this is like public announcement at the beginning of every sermon, is, is a, what happened to the catechism? Did we dump the catechism? The answer is no. We're returning to the catechism as we enter Lent. So in a few weeks, in about a month, we're going to head back into the catechism, begin flipping charts, and be able to, to re, begin to re-enter the, the deep things of God that we're going to be learning throughout the rest of the year. But uh, so as we continue to focus, though, in these coming weeks on life on mission, as we, as we focus during the season of Epiphany on what does it look like for us to live out the gospel in action around us, um, I want to do this. I want to have everybody, we're going to read together the definition so that it continues to sink in and we have a clear sense of what we mean when we say life on mission. So I'm going to ask and then we're, we all are going to say out loud, what is life on mission? Living out. Am I renewed? Awesome. Well, what we did uh, two weeks ago is we focused on some of the barriers, some of the pitfalls that come naturally to us, particularly as we start doing it next to each other uh, in a life on mission. And then last week, we focused on kind of the, the ground, the, the foundation from which we're able to start doing good works from what place? How does being and doing and how are they connected to one another as we live on mission? Uh, we're heading towards more particularity. More, more specificity. We're heading towards a, a greater sense of what it looks like for you in particular. We're going to be handing out this discovery tool in, in a little bit that you're going to, in a couple of weeks, that you're going to be able to start working personally and in community about, okay, so specifically, how has God made me and how is he inviting me, calling me, leading me, like drawing me towards the kind of life on mission that brings change to the world around me, to his glory. So that's kind of where we're heading. And, and so we're, in a sense, we're building foundations one layer at a time. And today we're going we're gonna to talk about something that, that can sometimes feel like it's at, in, at tension with or in tension with um, doing and living out of exactly how you're made and who you are. It's in tension because sometimes what God does is he sends you to do things that you don't want to do and he sends you to people you don't want to be around. He invites you to move towards those who are not naturally or in a sense based on how you would choose to move and be on mission. God gives you assignments that are not with the assignment you would have chosen. And so this morning, to that end, we're going to spend some time in the book of Jonah. So uh, just real quick, the book of Jonah and VeggieTales Jonah, not the same thing. So if the extent of your Jonah knowledge is VeggieTales, there's some relearning to be done, and that's great. And one of the ways we're going to do that is actually I'm going to have Steve come up, and I'm going to ask him to read for us the entire book of Jonah. Say again, Matt? The entire book of Jonah. Now, if you know your Bible, it's four chapters. It's all good. And they're pretty short and they're narrative and they're full of all kinds of action. So this is what I want you to do. As Steve reads, and it'll be on the screen or on the, in the Bibles you have, I want to invite you to like step into the narrative. 
Like walk into the story and look around. Participate in a sense in the conversation happening between Jonah and God and, and Jonah and the sailors and, and God and Jonah and Nineveh. Enter it and let him do some things in you even as the scripture is read over you. Steve? Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought and that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet, I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deeps surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. 
When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let, not them, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he would see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it came up, come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord.
Steve. <clears throat> what a story, right? I know the last time you, you listened to Jonah, listened or read Jonah. Um, one of the things before we even jump in that's very important, this is a point of clear theology uh, that I need to, to point out, is that what you'll see at the beginning in chapter 1 and in chapter, and then once in chapter 3, that Jonah is called to arise. Now, literally in the Hebrew, it's to rise up, which means one thing, <laughs> one thing that I can understand clearly from the scriptures and I know, Roger Quam, I know you don't agree with me, but clearly God is a Falcons fan. That's what I'm seeing here. That's all I got. He's not a New England fan. I mean, there's nothing about tea or other things about Boston. I know nothing about Boston. <laughs> That's not real theology, just to be clear. Don't take that. Uh, Jonah, Jonah, is he's something else. I mean, he is something else. I hope you saw a little of yourself in there. I hope you saw a little of someone you know. But according to the word of the Lord, it says in 2 Kings 14.25, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, we know that Jonah was a prophet in Israel. He wasn't just a prophet, but he was kind of a successful prophet. He was connected directly in with Jeroboam II, who was one of the kings of the, kings of the northern tribes that actually moved their process forward to be more prosperous, more powerful. He sealed off the borders to the north. So things were going better than they had been. Now, Jeroboam II still did all the sacrificing, all the idolatry, all the stuff that used to happen before, but Jonah apparently is in his midst, and he's one of those that is prophesying and calling for repentance. The other thing that's happening simultaneously is that, like in Mordor, where there is a dark cloud floating over, there is something brewing in the north, and it's Assyria. Assyria has been growing in power, growing in influence, and it looks like it's becoming more and more threatening. Danger looms. And then God talks to Jonah. In the midst of that time, he comes and says, Jonah, I have something for you. So as we asked earlier, why does God sometimes call us into assignments as we live our life on mission that we do not want and to people that we would not choose? Why does God sometimes call us into assignments as we live our life on mission that we would not want and towards people that we would not choose? Well, I'd like to submit as we look at the book of Jonah that there are, are two fundamental purposes for why he does it, and then there's, there's the power for how he invites us to do it. So there's the purpose that he has for these things in us, and then there's the purpose that he has through us. As God calls and invites us to things we would not choose to do or want to do and to people that we would not choose to be with or be a part of, he has purposes, clear, distinct purposes. You see, if, if the reason for Jonah's narrative was to only talk about the purposes of what life on mission through someone looks like, well, this would have been a much simpler book. We would have had God calling Jonah, skip, 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 Jonah arrives in Nineveh, Jonah preaches in Nineveh, Nineveh repents, God forgives, and roll credits. That would be all the through, right? That's all the things that happened through Jonah. But there's so much more in the book. 
What God is telling us is that he does, wants to do things through us and in us as he assigns us things that we would not choose to people we would not want. And so we're going to look at how God has purposes in us and then how he has purposes through us. His purposes in us begin pretty clearly at the beginning here with how he reveals our rebellious and cold heart and reinforces how we need grace. Jonah's the good guy. He's the righteous one, and he sees himself as such. And yet the most important thing that must happen in Jonah's heart that God's wanting to do in him is he wanting, he's wanting to show, to show him that he is a rebellious man. That unlike his credentials, he actually has kind of a Heisman to God in areas that he chooses. He's very clear about the fact that he does not want to do what God has for him. God calls him and he runs. Disobedient, disobeying God and rejecting what he's calling us to is not just a, a declaration of sin. It's actually more fundamental. It's saying, I don't see my identity as connected to the word you have for me. I'm disconnecting who I am and what I'm about from your word about who I am and what you have for me, which is ultimately is an identity outside and without God, away from the word of God. And you can tell he's guilty because he's asleep in the bottom of the boat. If you ask cops, you know, they put a bunch of people in, in a room to figure out who's guilty and they let them sleep overnight, the one who's sleeping, that's the guilty guy. The others are like, oh man, what's going to happen? I didn't do anything wrong. The guilty guy's asleep because he knows. Jonah's not surprised when they come to him and say, hey, something's going on here. He's guilty and he's put everyone at risk. Everyone at risk. God's wanting to reveal to him his rebelliousness, which he does not see because of his self-righteousness. He thinks much of himself. And God, in his kindness, reveals to him that indeed he is just as rebellious as the people he's trying to send, him to, send them to. Which is one of the reasons why the, the verse, when he prays in chapter 2, how powerful that verse is when he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. Uh, NIV says it this way, those who, cling to, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And finally, after Jonah comes to his senses, much like the prodigal son, and recognizes that because of him, others might die, he repents, kinda. Which is much like us. Wouldn't it be great if we repented all the way about everything, every time? But God is patient and faithful and gracious. Jonah needed grace, and he receives grace. He repents, kinda, and he receives grace. It also reveals the gap. One of the things that, that God does by offering Jonah something he does not want to do, it reveals the gap between what Jonah says is true and what Jonah actually lives is true. Jonah stands in front of all the sailors as they're trying to ask, who are you and where are you from and whose people are you from? And what does he say? I'm a Hebrew, which is like, pop the collar. I'm a Hebrew. I'm, I'm, my God is the God who's over all the land. And what does he say? All the sea. Jonah is running away from God, disconnecting himself from the mission God's called him to and is declaring that God is actually the one who has dominion over all things. 
There's a disconnect, and God's taking the opportunity to reveal to Jonah that what you say you believe and how you're actually living aren't matching up. It's some of the gift that he gives Jonah for him to see himself and reveal to him the gap between what he believes, what proper theological orthodoxy, and yet where his real fear lies. But the other thing, the fundamental thing that God is revealing to Jonah is he's revealing the idols of his heart. Uh, Jonah 4 that Steve just read to us, verse 1 through 3 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, super angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. If you're ever wondering what the telltale signs of idolatry are or an idol of the heart in your, it's those two things. What are you getting really angry about and what makes you feel like you can't go on? What is it that if it's taken from you, you will become incredibly enraged? And what is it that if you don't receive, you'll fall apart? When those things surface, nine times out of ten, ten times out of ten, there's idolatry involved. Your heart has clung to a worthless idol. Why did Jonah hate Assyria? He hates them because they're idolatrous. Israel's idolatrous. He hates them because they're proud. Well, Israel's proud. He hates them because they are ruthless, and they were. The stories of decapitations and rough stuff happening in the Assyrian is really rough. They were dangerous, cruel, a country of conquest, and they were becoming a growing threat to Israel, but what was more frightening is that the prophets Amos and and the prophet Hosea had recently said, by the way, Israel, if you don't repent, God is going to send Assyria to come in and bring judgment upon you. And so when Jonah looks at Assyria, he actually sees a people who are idolatrous, who are cruel, and they're going to be the instrument of God's judgment upon Israel. And so he He hates them. He wants to have nothing to do with them. And it reveals the idol of his heart, one of superiority and self-righteousness. Jonah believed that idolaters forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And so they had no right to be shown mercy. They were too bad. Which is why that prayer that Jonah prays when he says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And what comes right after it? He says, but I, with a voice of of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There is a boast in there. Do you hear it? Because he's separating himself. The reason we know is because when he finds himself in Nineveh, he doesn't actually believe this, right? He's not saying those who cling in worthless idols like me, I'll be more than glad to. No, 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 no. It's them and me. I think one of the, probably the most 
significant examples of this played out during the 70s and 80s and I think still has major ramifications today. Amidst the, the AIDS crisis that took place in our country and around the world, especially as it emerged and scared everyone, one of the things that happened is that the Christian community, particularly in the United States but around the world, began to see this as a righteous plague upon the gay community. And it became this boast, this sense that there's a deserving of this terrible thing that's happening. Now, ironically, Christian communities were willing to send doctors to villages in Africa that were struggling with the AIDS epidemic, but they would not be okay with anyone going into hospital rooms where men and women, men mostly, were dying. And not attend funerals. I heard a speaker a few years ago who himself, at before, uh, as before he came to Christ, had, had lived a homosexual lifestyle. And he shared this, and I will never forget it. He said, this was a season during, during the life of our community where friends and former lovers were dying. And no, one, and no one knew what to do, and everyone was afraid. And all we heard was a barrage from those who claimed Jesus that this was good and right and fitting, the right punishment of a divine God backed by some biblical texts. And he said to us, there's a room full of several hundred people, he said, I don't know that the Christian community will ever recover. I don't know that we'll ever recover for the fact that when those who were in need, we turned our back and judged and accused, that we didn't step in and towards, that we didn't hold hands in hospital rooms because we were so afraid for ourselves and for our reputation. He said, I don't know that we'll ever recover. He's like, but I hope we'll try. I hope we'll move. I hope we will seek to bring something different. He said, brothers and sisters, there is a community that still is longing for Jesus, just like we are. There is something about us that naturally comes when we come to know Christ and believe that he has chosen us and is doing things in us, is we become better then. We're, ours is not as bad as, and we know Jesus and we have him. One of the things that God's sending us to people that we would not choose or to situations that we would not choose is he reveals in us a self-righteousness, a superiority that we have and are more than, and it grieves God. It's not too dissimilar from the, the idolatry of, of racism and nationalism that comes out of Jonah. Jonah is a loyal nationalist. And by the way, he despises non-Israelites, which was common in the day. But, but what's broken about it is that Israel had been chosen by God, as God says, not because you were great or strong or better. I chose you because I chose you. And I chose you for a very clear purpose. I chose you that you would display as a kingdom of priests to the world what I'm like. Your light. And you're supposed to draw people towards you through it. That was lost it was lost within the kingdom of Israel. And it, some of it was lost because there was war and fear and uncertainty and economic prosperity and then economic loss. And they lost the purpose for which they existed, which was to glorify God and to do so in a way that drew everyone 
towards them. And I don't know, there's something about that that sounds like us, too. That, that nationalism, and in, this, in some cases, racism, become the, the, the trumpet calls. And I want to just remind us, on Super Bowl Sunday, that we are not first Americans. We are not first defenders of the Constitution and f- fighters for freedom. I'm glad we're those things, but that is not what we are most. What we are most and totally is children, sons, and daughters of the kingdom of God, that we are citizens of heaven, and that because of that, because that's the fundamental and truest thing about us, we are not trying to create a nation. We are trying to be, ever since Pentecost across the world, trying to be a people within nations that brings up through holiness and love and and works of good deeds the name of Jesus, that communities, cultures, yes, governments would be changed. We work from within. That's what happened at Pentecost. It was no longer a nation that was going to be a light. It was a people amongst the nation being light everywhere. Which means you have more in common with the believer from Korea or, or Kenya or Iran than you do with, the, with Joe next door who flies an American flag and will root for the Falcons today. You have more in common with them. That is truer of your citizenship than it is to this country. Now, I love my country, but this is not our home. And we forfeit mission when we lose that perspective on all fronts. A few, this, is, this was uh, a few years ago, probably about seven or eight years ago, there was a video that came out that was circling amongst the Christian community. And um, I got it from a couple different people, so I knew it was circling. And uh, you may have seen it, and it was kind of a PowerPoint presentation, um, and it was basically a video that said, Europe is being taken over by Muslims. That's basically the story. And it was talking about birth rates of people in England and, and Spain and Italy versus the birth rates amongst the Islamic communities within those countries and said, by 2040, like, Europe will be Muslim. And I remember coming away from that video and it, like, the colors were red and it was flashing and stuff. And I was like, this video told me two things. This, is, this is, was fascinating to me. One, be afraid. Like, be afraid and don't let that happen here. And the second thing it told me is that we are far more comfortable with a secularized materialist culture going to hell in Europe than we are as long as they're not Muslims. I mean, as long as they're not Muslims, we're okay. Can I just say, do you know know who is turning to Christ in the world? If you listen to who's being converted, who's turning to Christ? It's not the European secularists. Like, kind of like they came, got the t-shirt, and don't want to play anymore. There's very little hope. And that's what some of we're concerned about as a nation, going like, where's our hope? You know who's turning to Christ? Asians, Africans, brown, black, South America, Muslims. A good friend of ours, he works in northern Iraq, and the stories of the things that are happening, the dreams that are happening out of nowhere, and people and whole entire communities coming to Christ. Like, it doesn't happen, like, outside Liverpool, outside Paris. It's not happening. 
Who do you not want God to send you to? Who, who do you want God not to send to you? Who do you want to not have move in next door? Who do you want to not have be a part of your project team at work? Who do you want to not have be one of the, your, your kids' best friends and, and play pals? Who do you want not to have ask you for help? When God calls us towards and to people and to circumstances that we would not choose, he reveals our idolatry, our superiority, our nationalism, our racism, our fears, our control. And he confronts us with it. The other thing he reveals is um, he reveals our comforts. I think that's probably one of the top idolatries of our culture is that there's a way for life not to hurt and do everything you can to relieve that as much as possible. That's, that's like insipid. And we don't want to be uncomfortable. And what that usually means is we, I don't want to be around people that aren't like me or I don't want to be around those that would be thinking differently in a way that makes me uncomfortable or unsure. Stay with my people. Jonah saw himself as an Israelite and as an Israel's prophet. He was not a prophet to Nineveh. He had, he had a mission, and it was to work with Jeroboam II, try to get him to get his act together because he's a mess. I have plenty of work over here with my people. And God says, no, I'm going to send you far away to a people you hate who one day will come in and to carry you all off with all that you possess because I'm doing something. A few weeks ago, we had, um, we had a couple of um, Mormon elders come to RCC. And I think Denise uh, Moss had invited them because they'd come to her door. And so they came and they sat with us for a couple weeks. And you know what was fascinating? I had a whole bunch of people coming up to me going like, did you see that the Mormons are here? <laughs> and and <laughs> what I kept thinking was, are you worried you're going to catch it? I don't think I understand. Like, what? <laughs> like we have... We have the solidity of the beauty of Christ, right? All is well, right? What we talked about last week, our identity, it's solid, right? What can be lost? Why can we not participate and engage in situations that are going to be uncomfortable? We can't lose anything. Nothing can be taken from us. Nothing can be taken from you. God's not uncomfortable with making us uncomfortable. He's just fine with it. And, and he will go, he will go to the ends of the world to bring about the kind of change in us. And that includes bringing us into circumstances and towards and around people that we would not choose. Because what he's wanting to do is he wants to bring about his purpose in us. But he also wants to bring his purpose through us. I have to blitz through this. Man, that reading took forever. <laughs> Just kidding, Steve. It was awesome. <laughs> um, there's two verses. Uh, God's purpose through us is uh, redemption and rescue. Redemption and rescue. Um, for the sailors, in uh, chapter 1, verse 16, it says, When the men, I'm sorry, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, more than the storm which had just been around them. 
And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I don't know why. The Hebrew is fascinating to me here. It actually goes, they feared with great fear, and they offered, they, they sacrificed sacrifices and vowed vows. The point is like fervency. They were more afraid of this God that they just understood as they tossed Jonah overboard and what they'd just seen than they were of any of the storm. They were awakened to something they had not seen before. God wants to bring about redemption in and through us. And then, of course, chapter 3, verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I just want to say, Jonah is the worst evangelist in the world. I mean, if you have any training in evangelism, like the message he gives is, well, certainly curbed. I mean, his words are, this is the message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I mean, is there more? I mean, all the other prophets, if you read the prophets, and, but, but, but if you turn, but if you turn, the Lord, the Lord will come through and he will redeem you and he will restore you and he will not bring the plagues upon you that he said he would. If you only turn, none of that. Well, Jonah hates them. We know, we got, we get the point. Like Jonah doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't want them to repent. He doesn't want them to turn. And this is the great news. Salvation is from the Lord. And if there's good news for you about whatever God calls you and moves to on in mission, is that you can be not even half-hearted. You don't even have to be wholehearted and not even skilled. And God will bring salvation. He will bring redemption. He will bring about rescue through you. You don't have to be great at it. You don't have to be all cleaned up and have your best attitude. You don't have to have stopped sinning for a certain amount of time before God will work through you. God works when he wants to work. Something about they're his works. Someone said that last week. They're his works. He's going to provide the power. He's going to accomplish them. You don't even have to want to. Isn't that amazing? Now, don't get me wrong. He wants you to want to, no doubt. And he wants to work that into you. But isn't it good news that you can even be like in opposition and he will still bring about rescue and redemption. That's our God. Because sometimes you're the one who needs that from someone who doesn't have it, can't pull it off, and doesn't care. When God shows up, we don't have to be wholehearted and skilled. You just have to be willing to walk. Be faithful to walk, to step into those things, to not flee. How do we do this? Well, uh, Jesus has this incredible quote in Matthew 12, 39 to 41. He says, an evil, he's talking about to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They're like, show us a sign, show us a sign. And... Um, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, 
something greater than Jonah is here. Loved ones, that's your hope. Someone greater than Jonah was here for you. For all the self-righteousness and all the blustering, for all the not being caring, not caring, not being... He was the one who was thrown into the sea, not because indeed everyone was perishing because of him, but everyone deserved to be thrown in the sea and he received it. He was cast down. He was thrown. He was the one whose the ropes were wrapped around him and he descended into Sheol, into the depth. And he did that for you. He did that because, because he was sent to a people that were going to reject him. He was given a mission, an assignment, and in the garden he says, Lord, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this, but not my will, your will. So if there's ever a moment where you find yourself going like, God, you can't possibly be asking this of me, not with them, not to do this, what you know is you have one who has gone before you. Not only has he gone before you, but he now makes it possible, not only by what he gives, but about how he forgives you in the midst of it. And as he was tossed into the sea, peace came for you. And peace came for me. And now in that peace, we go and we offer peace. We offer hope. Because we should have been cast overboard. You should have been cast overboard. Because you deserve to be thrown in the water. But God. And so as we come and we receive communion this morning, that's what we get to ask God. God, would you allow the power of Christ's work in me, on my behalf, for me, to bring about the kind of changes in me and to work your perfect purposes through me? He must. And he will. He will. So let's pray. Father, uh, we, we come and we receive now. We're desperate for you and we have nowhere else to go. It takes very little for our idolatries to come to the surface. And yet for us, you became the perfect Jonah, the perfect missionary, We love you, Father. We are desperate for you. We want to be changed by you. So do your work in us. And we pray by faith that whatever you send us, whomever you send us, wherever you send us, that we would find ourselves saying, salvation is from the Lord. We trust these things because of what you've done for us. Find comfort, peace. It is well with our soul this morning. May we experience that and receive that as we receive these elements. In Christ's name, amen. Loved ones, come and receive communion of Christ, his body and blood for you.